0: SECTION 55 OF OLD RAIL FENCE CORNERS This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. OLD RAIL FENCE CORNERS Edited by Lucy Leavenworth Wilder Morris Waden Chapter Minneapolis, Miss Marion Moyer Mrs. Gideon Pond, 1843 On the 23rd day of August, 1842, I was married to Robert Hopkins. He was preparing to come to the Northwest as an assistant missionary in the Dakota Mission, and in March, 1843, we started on our long journey from Ohio to Fort Snelling, sent out by the American Board. We came down the Ohio and up the Mississippi in a steamboat, stopping off for Sabbath and had to wait a long time for a boat at Galena after spending Sunday there. We reached Fort Snelling in May after a tedious journey. From Fort Snelling we started up the Minnesota River in an open boat propelled by oars. At night we camped on the banks and cooked our supper. In the party were Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Riggs and their two children and his wife's brother mr riggs was just returning from the east where he had had some books printed in the dakota tongue we also had three men to row the boat we suffered much from the myriads of mosquitoes we baked our bread each day it was simply flour and salt and water baked in a frying-pan before a smoking camp-fire it was very distasteful to me and i determined to have a loaf of light bread I had some homemade yeast cakes in my luggage, as bought yeast cakes were then unknown. I soaked one of them in a pail of river water, stirred in some flour, and soon had some nice light yeast. I mixed a loaf of bread and set it where the hot sun would keep it warm. At night it was ready to be baked, and I used a little Dutch oven which was on the boat to bake it in. The oven was like a black iron kettle, flat on the bottom, and standing on three little legs about three inches long. We placed coals under the oven, and a thick iron cover heavier than any you ever saw. We heated in the fire and placed over the oven to bake the bread on the top, while to bake it on the sides we turned the oven around, I attending the baking of my bread with great solicitude and care." while it was baking an indian man came into the camp and sat down by the fire i paid no attention to him but attended to my loaf just as i would have done if he had not been there mrs riggs said you should not have let that man see your bread i said why not and she answered he may come in the night and steal it which i thought was preposterous in the morning i fried some bacon made coffee spread the breakfast on the ground and went to get my bread, and it was gone. So the breakfast had to wait until I could mix some of the bread I disliked so much and bake it. I remember well, I thought, so this is the kind of people I have come to live among. At the point called Traverse des Sioux, we left the river and made the remainder of our journey nearly one hundred miles, in wagons which had been sent from the mission at Lac Caparral to meet us. A new station was to be started at Traverse, and Mr. Riggs and two of the men remained there to build houses for us. We were four or five days going from Traverse to Lac Caparral and had many thrilling adventures. Mr. Riggs had been east a year, and had taken with him three young Indian men, that they might see and learn something of civilized life. They were returning with us on our way to their homes, The last morning of our journey, two of them proposed to go ahead on foot and reach their friends, as they could go faster so than in wagons. The other, being sick, remained with us. We had an extra horse, and later he was told that he might ride on to meet his friends. After some time he came tearing back. He excitedly told us that his only brother had come to meet him, and had been murdered by ambushed Ojibwe Indians we soon came to where the scalped and bleeding body lay right across the road. The men of our party carried the body gently to one side and covered it with a canvas. In a short time we met large numbers of Indian men armed and very much excited, in pursuit of those who had murdered their neighbor and friend. I could not understand a word they said, but their gestures and words were so fierce that I expected to be killed." They fired at our team, and one of the horses was so seriously injured that we had to stop. Mrs. Riggs and I walked the rest of the journey, five miles, she carrying her fifteen-months-old baby. This was July 4, 1843. My first baby was born on the 10th of the following September. On this last five miles of our journey, Indian women came out to meet us. Some of them had umbrellas and held them over us. They seemed to know that this was a terrible adventure for us. One of them put her arms around me, and tried to help me on, and was as kind as any white woman. They offered to carry Mrs. Riggs's baby, but the little thing was afraid of them, and cried so that they could not. Mrs. Riggs kept saying over and over again, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Indians seemed to me very poor indeed. They had for many years depended upon the buffalo, but now these were growing very scarce, and no longer furnished a living for them. The Indian women each year planted small patches of corn with only their hoes for ploughs. They raised only small amounts, and they had no storehouses. Sometimes they buried their supply of food for the coming spring in holes in the ground, but dared not mark the place for fear of having their supplies stolen, so they were not always able to find it when it was wanted. In the fall they gathered wild rice, which they threshed by flailing it in buffalo skins. In the spring they made a little maple sugar. They were often very short of food and suffered from hunger. One day I cooked a squash, putting the parings in a swill pail. An old Indian woman came in and made loud cries of dismay when she saw my wastefulness, saying, "'Why did you throw this away?' She then gathered them carefully out of the pail, and carried them home in her blanket to cook. Pies that were set out on the window-sill to cool disappeared also. This first winter was spent at Lac Caparl or Mede the lake that speaks, in both tongues. I was told that it was so named from a remarkable echo about the lake. I kept house in a little room on the second floor of a log-house, Dr. Williamson and his family lived on the lower floor. One day as I was alone sitting at my table writing, the door of my room opened and a hideously painted Indian came in. His face, as nearly as I can remember, was painted half red and half black, with white streaks across. A band around his head contained a number of large feathers, indicating the number of enemies he had killed. He evidently hoped to frighten me terribly. I determined I would try not to let him know how frightened I was. I sat still at my table and kept on with my writing, and in a short time he went downstairs again. This Indian was the famous Little Crow, the leader of the outbreak of 1862. Afterwards, my second husband, Mr. Pond, tried to teach Little Crow to read music, and he told me that he had double teeth all around. Little Crow learned to sing and had a fine voice. He was a fine-looking fellow without his paint, tall, slender, and strong-looking. In the spring of 1844, April 4, we started on our journey back to Traverse des Sioux. We had a snowstorm on the way, but reached our new home in peace and safety. This was a one-room log cabin with a little attic above. The Indians here were not quite as friendly as those at Lac Kaparil and seemed to wish we had never come among them. I had a class of all the little Indian girls that I could persuade to come to school. Their parents seemed very much opposed to having their children learn to read, sew, cook, or anything else. I think they had an idea that in some way we would be paid for our trouble in teaching them, and that it would be to their disadvantage when they sold their land. At any rate, only a few girls came to the school." In order to make my task of teaching them less unpleasant, I provided basins, towels, soap, and combs, and requested them to use them each day as they came in. Contrary to my expectations, they seemed to delight in these morning ablutions, especially if I brought a mirror so they might see themselves. One of these girls was an especial favorite of mine. She came quite regularly, and seemed interested in trying to learn all she could. She was about fifteen years old. The girls had to walk about a mile through the deep snow to reach the school. One day this favorite girl was absent. I asked why she was not there, but the other girls did not know. The next day again she was absent, and the other girls told me the reason was because she did not wish to marry a man who had bought her, and had three wives already. That day her parents went for food from a store of provisions which they had, leaving her at home to care for the younger children. While they were gone, she committed suicide by hanging herself. The Indian tents were heated by making a fire on the ground in the center, and smoke partially escaping through a hole in the top. On each side of this fire they drove a forked stick into the ground, and laying a pole across these sticks, hung on it their utensils for cooking." To this pole this poor Indian girl had tied a rope attached to a strap about her neck, and, the pole being low, had lifted her feet from the ground and hanged herself rather than marry a man she did not love. One day, when I was alone in my house at Oyuega or Traverse des Sioux, an Indian man came softly in and sat down by the stove. I soon saw that he was drunk, which frightened me a little. I said nothing to him except to answer his questions, because I did not wish to rouse his anger. Presently he reached to the stove and lifted a griddle, and I thought he was going to strike me. The griddles on the cook-stoves, then, each had its handle attached, instead of having a separate handle. I slipped out of the door, and soon he went away. Later he came back and said, "'They tell me I was going to strike you the other day.' I was drunk, and that is my reason. I would not have done it if I had been sober. I accepted his apology, thinking it a good one for an unlearned Indian. The treaty between the U.S. government and the Dakota Indians was made in July of 1851. The commissioners of the government, three in number, came in June. Their chief was Luke Lee. There were no houses where the white people could be entertained, so they camped in tents on the bluffs of the minnesota river near an old trading-house occupied at that time by mr leblanc the bluff was not an abrupt one but formed a series of terraces from the river to the summit the camp was on one of these terraces there was a scarce fringe of trees along the river but from there to the top and as far back as the eye could see perhaps for two miles back on the bluff there was not a bush or tree A great many white men assembled, Governor Ramsey, General Sibley, Honorable H. M. Rice, editors also from some of our newspapers, among them Mr. Goodhue of the Pioneer Press, were there. Traders, too, came to collect debts from the Indians when they should receive the pay for their land. Mr. and Mrs. Richard Shute of St. Anthony came. Accidentally their tent had been left behind, and they found a boarding-place with me." The Indians were there in great numbers. Many of them were from the far west, and these were much more uncouth and savage-looking than any who lived around us. Some of their women wore no garment but the skin of animals, which formed a skirt reaching from a few inches above the waist to the knee, and hung from the shoulders by straps. The Indians pitched their tents on different terraces of the bluff some little distance away from the white people's camp daily the indians had their feasts dances and games of different sorts they seemed a little afraid to treat were afraid of being wronged and were very cautious the commissioners were very kind to them and treated them with great respect they prepared for a great celebration of the fourth of july the mission families hopkins and huggins were invited to be present mr hopkins was asked to make an address and lead in the opening prayer he rose early that fair beautiful morning, and went, as was his custom, for a bath in the river. I made haste to prepare breakfast for my family of seven. My youngest child was seven weeks old that day. But the father never came back, and the body was found three days later. There were four white women at the place at that time, Mrs. Huggins, the wife of the other missionary, Miss Amanda Wilson, a mission school teacher, Mrs. Shute, a fair beautiful young woman visitor, and myself. We were just a short distance from the old crossing called by the Dakotas Oyuwega and by the French Traverse des Sioux. In September, I went back to my mother in Ohio with my three little children. Mr. and Mrs. Riggs were going east too for a visit, and again I journeyed with them. As there was a large party of us, and the American board which paid our expenses was not wealthy. Mr. Riggs thought we ought not to travel first class, so we went in the second-class coaches. The seats were hard, like benches. My daughter, Sadie, then two and a half years old, was taken sick, and cried and begged for water, but there was none. I was in the deepest distress at not being able to give the poor sick little thing a drink. In the night the train stopped somewhere for water, and a young man, whom I could not remember ever having seen before, got off and bought a cup of water for 25 cents and gave it to the poor sick baby. If I have thought of that young man since, I have thought hundreds, perhaps thousands, of times of him, and wished that I could thank him again and tell him what a beautiful thing he did. I remained with my mother till I was married to Mr. Pond in April 1854. Again this northwest became my home, The Indians had sold their land to the government and been sent farther west. The country was filling up with white settlers. Bloomington has been my home ever since. When I came to Bloomington as a bride, there were seven motherless children of the first Mrs. Pond, the eldest being about fifteen years old. I brought with me my three fatherless children, so our family numbered twelve. Our home was a log house of six rooms, there were no schools anywhere within our reach. Every morning our children and some of our neighbors gathered about our long kitchen table, which was our dining table as well, for their lessons taught by the mother or one of the older children. There were no sewing machines to make the numerous garments necessary for our family, no lamps, no kerosene. We made our own candles, as well as our own bread and butter and cheese and soap our lives were as busy as lives could be. In the summer of 1856 we made bricks on our own place, with which we built the house where I have lived ever since. Mr. McLeod was our nearest neighbor. North of us I cannot remember that we had any nearer than Minneapolis. Down toward Fort Snelling lived Mr. Quinn in a little bit of a house." One night Mr. Pond was at the old Sibley house at Mandota, when a number of traders were there. During the evening, as they told stories and made merry, many of the traders told of the joys of sleeping out of doors with nothing between them and the starry sky, how they never minded how hard the bed was if they could only see the green trees around them and the stars above. Mr. Pond, who also had had experience in outdoor sleeping, said that he liked nature too but he preferred to sleep when he could with a roof over him and a good bed beneath him after some laughter and joking on the subject the traders one by one stole out and gathering up all the feather beds the house afforded heaped them upon the bed in the attic which mr pond was to occupy thinking that he would at once see the joke and return their beds to them instead he climbed upon the mountain of feathers Laughing at the joke on his would be tormentors, and slept comfortably all night while they had to spend the night on hard boards. He loved to tell this story of how the laugh was on them. End of section fifty five.